0: Okay, so I start recording now. Um, so, well, I guess, good afternoon. The, um, my name is Giovanni palafox Alcanta. Uh, we're now recording for the Future of Cooling podcast at the University of Oxford. Um, first of all, I'm going to introduce myself in one brief, brief paragraph. So I'm a research associate at the Future of Cooling. Uh, We are working in work package number four, which is on sustainable cooling production networks. Uh, We are researching the full life cycle of cooling appliances to better understand how these technologies that we use for cooling can be designed, produced, used and processed at the end of life for maximum sustainability. And this approach is basically uh, developed under the circular economy paradigm and um, so such an economy would reduce waste from cooling and improve its access to everybody and contribute to carbon neutrality. And today we have a very special guest. Um, her name is Tina Ben-Billy. Um, She's an international professional with over 20 years of experience in policy analysis and implementation on sustainable development related issues and management. During her career, she has served us as the the Minister of Environment, Energy and Climate Change for Greece and the Greece ambassador to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OCD. Um, she's been also an executive secretary of the Vienna Convention for the protection of the ozone layer at the, and the Montreal Protocol. And finally, right now, T- Tina is currently the deputy executive secretary of the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification So in all of her roles, Tina's diplomatic skills, solid scientific knowledge and strategic thinking have been a catalyst for innovation and results. In particular, she has headed the Ocean Secretariat during the long and sensitive negotiations that created the Kigali Amendment to the the Montreal Protocol, uh, which is hailed as one of the most important climate agreements in history. So welcome, Tina, and it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and very honor to be here with you, Giovanni. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, So after some brief introductions, um, now we should proceed to to your interview. So we're going to ask you a few questions on three main uh, themes. So we should crack on then. Um, So first of all, so based on your experience in multilateral agreements, how difficult do you think it is to bring together so many countries to have an agreement, such as the Montreal Protocol, so that it benefits all of the parts.
1: Thank you, Giovanni. I will, um, I will start by saying that the United Nations is strong because it has an amazing convening power. And the United Nations is nothing more but an honest broker where it provides a space where countries can come with their different opinions, different positions, uh, negotiate and discuss, and where they want to solve real challenges that they face in their national countries, in the national settings. So once you try to unravel and solve the specific challenges, then consensus arrives, then consensus is being uh, achieved. So I I do think that the more countries see the benefits of their consensus of the results of the discussions, the more committed they are, and the more willing they are to join the discussions, the negotiations, and the agreement. And if you ask me what is the thrust of the success, and coming back to to the Montreal Protocol, I would say two things. First, the interaction between science, a very solid science, policy and diplomacy. And second, the fact that this protocol hasn't said to the countries, don't do that, you're not allowed to do that. It provided another option of doing it. So, and it provided also the support and the assistance for the countries to be able to deliver on what has been agreed at the Montreal Protocol.
0: Okay, so that sounds brilliant. So it's, what you mean like making explicit benefits to everybody that, you know, that could be critical? Exactly. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. So next question is, what are the general strengths and weaknesses of this type of multilateral approaches? And are there any more or less appropriate for different types of challenges?
1: Yes, I think, as I said before, I think the United Nations offers this space of having countries coming together. And the similarities of these conventions, of these multilateral environmental agreements, is that they focus on one specific theme. Now one thing may be a very, very big thing, but still most of the times they are approaching the issue monothematic. This is the strength because it allows countries to discuss and it allows governments to put forward their own national positions, but on the other hand it reflects a weakness a weakness of how our own governments are being formed at a national level, where you have the different sectors. And this, of course, is being um, scaled up at the international discussions, at the international level. So I believe that the strength and the weakness are the two sides of the same coin. The, international the multilateral environmental agreements offer a possibility of harmonizing the different policies that are going to be implemented by many many countries and the more countries implement the better the result will be but of course how do you achieve this harmonization is also a a big challenge and to wrap up I think the, the Montreal Protocol going back to the Montreal Protocol had universal membership, and it still has. So you have 198 parties. This is a very big strength of the protocol. You have a very solid science that advises the the countries, that guides countries to take the decisions upon facts and figures. And then you have a funding mechanism which assists parties in delivering on their commitments. So these are the strengths. And the challenge for me is the way our minds work, the mindset of how you bring everything together. So when you go back to your country and you have what you have from the Montreal protocol, how do you link that to other agendas? How do you link it to climate change? How do you link it to the circular economy? Mm -hmm. How do you link it to the energy efficiency? Uh, I think this is where the challenge lies. And it's, I think, a challenge of our mindset of
0: our institutions that's very very insightful uh, comments thank you um so could you tell us uh, i'm i was meaning to ask this option later this question later but i think it's very appropriate now so could you tell us briefly about your work at the Vienna convention and the ocean protection yeah
1: well, I can tell you with one uh, possibly phrase that it has been the most rewarding part of my career till now and of my life uh, because I think, you know, it's a very blaring sort of um, divide between what is personal and what is professional. Mm-hmm. The, w- the way that you're doing your work is personal. And I think it showed for me it was always, every day, a sort of a gratitude of what I was doing and sort of an injection of optimism in whatever I was doing and passion. So I think this sort of gratitude that you have all these countries coming together and whatever you decide, it affects the, the lives of people that are living in those countries and then the passion and the commitment in this sense of, of a family, of a community that has a common goal. It has been one of the most rewarding experiences that
0: I had in my life. well that's very good to hear thank you um so what what do you think in in your opinion which other policy mechanisms could could achieve help or uh, help us achieve the global temperatures targets
1: Um, as i said i think i have alluded to the way that i would like to respond to this question uh, earlier on by saying that It is not about how many more mechanisms we have or what different types of mechanisms we have. I think we have a lot. It is about how we bring everything together. It is about how we have this sort of revolution in our minds, an intellectual revolution, a shift in minds, a shift in education. How do you bring the different, how do you go apart from sectors, beyond sectors, you don't have the energy sector. You have an energy system. You don't have the food sector. You have a food system. And the food system has inputs and outputs and interfaces with all the other systems. So I think, for me, it's not the question of how more and what more, but how we bring everything together. And if I have one more minute, uh, Giovanni, I want to uh, make an incredible... We have had experience in the past of an incredible cooperation, an incredible synergy that happened between the UNFCCC, which is the Climate Convention, and the Montreal Protocol, where we're discussing exactly the amendment of Mm Kigali. Because basically what has happened, we took one group of chemicals that was part of the Climate Convention mandate, and we brought it under the Montreal Protocol. And this has never been done before in the history of the United Nations. And it shows that when governments see the opportunities and when the governments understand what policy mechanism can deliver better for them, then they make it, they make it happen. So this is an example of a coordination cooperation between different policy mechanisms that exist and and each one of them has its own
0: role. That's great. So about that, uh, do you think there was a specific trigger that, that, that helped to that cooperation. So what, what brought like bringing one chemical thing to, uh, to a different agreement?
1: The trigger was um, the trigger was that the Montreal Protocol has been working very well within the refrigeration and air conditioning mm-hmm. um, systems. And the parties saw that this was an opportunity to ensure that they have a climate change mitigation strategy through the protocol, through the Montreal protocol. However, using all the benefits and the the specifications, the modalities of the protocol itself. So if the parties would... Uh, regulate and would commit to phase down schedules for HFCs, then they would have all the benefits of the Montreal Protocol, like funding, capacity development, assistance in the transition from one chemical to another. So they saw the opportunity and they saw that there was a gap there and a the niche that uh, everything was win-win, and they mm-hmm. moved ahead.
0: That's brilliant, and they saw that that benefit straight away. So I was meaning to ask, so before you just mentioned that it's not only about bringing in what else needs to be done. It's not a question of what, what are the policy agreements or what else, but a combination of things. So you said.
1: It's a combination of having our mind open to see where the opportunities are and mm. whether one opportunity provides a solution for a challenge in another convention. And I think it's this, uh, it's this sort of also need to maximize the benefits that you have from existing treaties and conventions that have been working very, very well. And I think this has been one of the issues that gave a different momentum to the Montreal Protocol. When the HFCs were incorporated into the protocol, not because they were threatening the ozone layer, but because they were threatening climate
0: change. Yes, that, that's exactly what what, what uh, it was trying to achieve. So taking on to that question, I mean, I know you've already said like, what, what are the lessons learned or, or what else do we, do we need to know from this type of agreement, specifically the Kigali amendment? So what do you think in the future could help in the negotiation aspect? And,
1: Hey, um, if I summarize what worked very well in Kigali, I would say um, possibly seven points. Um, let mm-hmm. me see if I count them correctly, but let me try okay. to be more specific. I think the first one is that science had a critical role to play. Mm-hmm. So science saw uh, there were scientific projections for climate change mitigation if you are phasing down HFCs. So science was the first point for sure. The second one is the negotiations were very difficult. So we need to set very realistic and tangible objectives like stepping stones to the overall objective of having the HFCs being incorporated into the the Montreal Protocol. So these realistic and tangible objectives, I think, is also an important part in the negotiation process. The third is that when countries negotiate, they don't want to be difficult. They want simply to bring forward the challenges that they have in implementation or in convincing their national Their national, their citizens, that this is a good way forward. So, trying to find solutions to the specific problems that the countries have before you negotiate the actual text is is a very important um, path. I think the fourth one is um, that you could possibly combine the formal discussions of the United Nations with informal discussions that can happen into different fora, into different workshops, where you try to really have a more open and frank discussion about the real challenges that are happening on the ground. The fifth could be that the Montreal Protocol has very uh, integrated this sense of fairness because of the funding facility that it has. So you just provide support to the countries to deliver on what they have agreed. And then possibly the the fact that you, in, in the discussions throughout the Kigali amendment, throughout the HFC discussions, we also had our private sector. The industries were quite involved in their own way in parallel discussions with industries from developing countries. So they were also, aware of the challenges that industries in developing countries were facing. And finally, as I said, the objection of, uh, the injection of optimism and uh, this sense of pride and ownership of the process uh, was also very important.
0: Yes, that's brilliant, very brilliant way to summarize all, all the points, thank you. So I was just thinking that Uh, from a point of view. So we look at the production of cooling appliances from a very mix of of perspectives. So we look at the engineering side, but we also look at the political economy in each country. And and of course, the international agreements such as Kigali influences a lot now the the current and the future production of, of cooling appliances. So I was just wondering, do you think that the Kigali amendment should bring in stronger perspectives on circular economy. So what I mean by that is that they also account for coolants as well as the machines. And do you think uh, another agreement is necessary?
1: Um I think the Kigali amendment did that in the way that when you when we when we were discussing the HFCs and how these were incorporated, or whether they would be incorporated in the Montreal Protocol. There were many countries that brought forward the issue of energy efficiency. And many countries said, you shouldn't look only at having a low global warming potential refrigerant, a refrigerant which is more protective of climate and ozone, but you need to think of other considerations because this may matter more for climate change mitigation. So energy efficiency was one of these parameters. So the discussion when you go to climate change considerations is always shifting from the product or the refrigerant to a system, a more systemic approach. So I think Montreal Protocol managed to do that. This is an ongoing discussion still, how we incorporate if the parties decide to incorporate energy efficiency in the in in throughout the chain of the montreal protocol um, activities and phases but i think the linkage is there uh not so um not so deep not so strong but the linkage is there
0: great i i totally agree with what you said about looking at, at the entire system so I'm not looking only at refrigerants and and uh, um, protecting the ocean layer. So that's exactly what we're trying to do with with the global production network. So looking at the at the process from the design stage, the extraction of resources, the use up until the disposal of, of waste. And as you said, it's very, very well known that the for cooling appliances, the energy user phase is the one that that requires a lot of energy and a lot of this energy is comes from, non-renewable resources.
1: And, and you are right, Giovanni. I think this is exactly the the institutional also and in the in the revolution that we were talking before. I mean how we we go from the the linear economy that we have now mm-hmm. and from this mentality of taking, making and wasting mm-hmm. to how we consume, how we produce we consume, and whatever we consume is feeding back into the same system. And this needs, of course, a change in the design, a change in the business model. It also needs to assist consumers to behave like that because they don't want to have a problem thinking, oh, now what am I I going to do with my iPhone or my phone? What am I going to do? You need to provide them the solutions and easy solutions for them to have it within their lives with the same you know if it is easy to go and buy something it should be very easy to dispose it correctly and and i think this is where we need to shift our effort
0: yes and i agree with that and i also think that uh, consumers should be should become as they become more aware of these solutions they begin demanding them as well so it's like a um bilateral uh, way of, of changing things. So when consumers are, are demanding things and when companies are providing them to raising awareness. So that's, that's great. Um, so I think to finalize the session about circular economy. So do you think in the future that circular economy mm. principles should be considered in policy making for climate agreements?
1: Uh, Oh, absolutely. I think if we see the, our target of 1.5 degree of Celsius uh, increase, um, then I think that, you know, if I'm, if I'm having the numbers correctly, approximately 50% or 55% of these reductions are coming from energy and transport. But then, 45% 45% comes from different production uses and land uses. So the circular economy sits exactly in the second part, the way that we produce, the way that we consume, and the way that we use our land. I think it's very important in, 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 in whatever we are doing from now on. Uh, and as I said, it will be difficult to change our mindsets, to change our institutions but there is a lot of work that is being done. A lot of work that is being done by scientific institutions and organizations that could assist countries in in thinking their national and designing their national policies differently. And of course, this will be reflected in international agreements as well.
0: Great, thank you. And I think that land use is a very important part uh, in, in the circular economy. So. One of the main objectives, as we both know, is changing that resources and trying to keep them in a, ideally in a perpetual loop. So, that that will mean, yeah, extracting less of any resource that is needed. So, and that's a, actually a great transition to our to our section about your current work. So, what you're doing right now with the certification. So, um. So drawing on your current experiences in combating desertification, I think that presumably climate change is a primary connection between the increasing cooling demand and desertification, but do you think there are others?
1: Um, I think it's an indirect link. Uh, When we talk about desertification, desertification is basically land degradation uh, that appears in areas where you don't have much water. Mm-hmm. So when it, you have in dry lands. And, and land degradation basically is when you have the land and you take out of the land its productivity. Uh, you take out of the land our ability to have good food, uh, to have um, to water supply, clean water supply to have fiber for the clothes that we are wearing. So again, it's, it's a loop. And I think the most important part there is since you have different needs, different human needs competing for land, uh, how do you, do you move from managing your land to planning for the old, all these different needs with circular economy principles also in your mind? Um, And I think, again, this is where the the big challenge and the big opportunity is as we are also moving into this UN decade of ecosystem restoration, which Mm -hmm. is from now from 2020 to to 2030. And of course, the the healthier the land is, the more carbon the soil can absorb, the less climate warming you have because you have a lot of climate change mitigation potential.
0: Yes, and I think so. As you said rightly, point that there is a, there is a connection between everything. So I'm just thinking that, for example, as as the cooling demand is expected to to increase, you know, exponentially in the next few years, with with uh, hot countries becoming hotter, and especially countries like with big populations like China and India, which are starting to become the, the middle class more. They can afford more of these units. So, you know, it's, it's, it's very challenging and, and it's something that we need to, to tackle in, in conjunction.
1: And I think there, Giovanni, the, the main issue is not so much not so much on the land degradation, but on the positive side. When you talk about land restoration, and hmm. we will be talking about land restoration in this UN decade of ecosystem restoration. When you talk about land restoration, there are there are four different basically systems. I'm not going to say ecosystems, but systems that are that become together, that you need to see very well the interface. One is the cities mm-hmm. and how cities will evolve. Rightly, as you've said, how you know how the middle class will, will raise the, the demand on, on the cooling appliances, but also. How cities will evolve after the pandemic that we had? Are people going to stay in the cities? Are they going to go a bit more rural and be able to telework from where they are? So one is the cities system. The second one is this rural, and actually the urban rural, which is very close to the cities, but it's not cities. It's not, uh, it's not farmland. So what do you do with the land there? In the interface between city and mountain city environment. Then you have the agricultural landscapes, and then you have the natural ecosystems that you would like to preserve. And the more, I think, the more people can work from afar, the more basically we may have even more pressure on these natural ecosystems. So everything again is linked into a nexus. Of all these different land uses, the different land users, and how you you care for land and how you become a land steward is a very important part and a very important challenge that we don't know how it will it will end up.
0: That's that's actually an in, incredibly interesting question, and I was just wondering because he said if, if people. Are working from far away from cities, you know. The, I think probably the suburban landscape might change, and and people working from rural areas. So you think, in that case, like the hinterlands of a city will will expand.
1: Yeah, and possibly you know you may not have so much uh, cooling demand in the in the places where you work, but you may have a lot of cooling demand in your buildings, in your houses. And how do you do you prepare for? This? And again, it has to be a system. For example, I'm working in a very very nice office. uh, uh, But then when I work from home, I don't have the possibility to control the cooling appliance that I have in the office and to turn it off, basically. So these are all challenges that we need to really think there are some of them are easy solutions. But because we have been taken for granted our different comfort zones, we don't want to to go an extra step of thinking. So there will be changes and that we need to see the land restoration with all these different entry points and these different challenges that we have. And cooling definitely, the demand for cooling is, is one of them
0: right yes and also as you said when when working from rural spaces um, not having to use the air conditioner in your office it's it's a great alternative so if you're surrounded by green areas which we call passive cooling areas yeah yeah, um, yeah it could change things very significantly for for energy demand
1: but but i also feel and i think um, we need to be also very pragmatic and very vigilant when we discuss about these things on how this can be interpreted and transferred to a developing country mm. where the where the demands are different and the needs are different and the expectations of people is are completely different so i think we we need to start thinking of solutions that can be not a solution that fits all circumstances, but solutions that uh, meet different needs and different different circumstances. We need to have always a, a options. We need we need to have policy options that we offer. Yeah, they Not need one single solution.
0: Need to be adaptable and really consider different contexts of of environment and, and, and different climates for, for regions and countries and behaviors of people as well. Well, that's great. Um, we, you've probably already said many of these, but one final question. Um, what do you think are the takeaway messages for combating, from combating desertification for sustainable cooling? Do you have anything to add? I know we've discussed plenty already, but if there is anything else.
1: Um, I I would say, I would summarise what we've said by the following, that if we want to have healthy land, we must have healthy people. And if we want to have healthy people, we need to have two very, very um, specific value chains that are not interrupted. One is the medical value chain, and the other one is the food chain mm-hmm. and both of them are based on cold chains, are based on our ability to cool our medicines, to cool our vaccines, to cool our food that is transported from the, uh, for the farmland to the market. So cooling is everywhere, is the basis of whatever we do, of our every single activity so I want to see cooling as a connector, as a connector even from the different systems of land that we were discussing previously, cities, rural areas, farmlands, natural ecosystems.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very insightful. Yes, we, we have uh, realized that sometimes cooling is not uh, very well acknowledged. It's like one of those underrated areas, but it's extremely important for human activities. And it has been really tested during this pandemic situation. But yeah, well, if there is anything else to add, I think that's been a very insightful discussion, very interesting perspectives, Tina. And I want to thank you very, very deeply for your valuable time and unique contribution and and your insights.
1: Thank you very much for the work that you have been doing in in the university. And I really feel that there are many lessons learned for policy makers, both at national and international level. And I look forward to listening to any uh, updates of, of your work. Thank you so much.
0: Well, thank you very much, Tina. And thank you for your work as well, which has been very critical for, for international agreements. Uh, So we have reached the end of our discussion, but we're, again, looking forward to discussing other issues related to cooling in the future. So thank you very much again, Tina, and hope to see you again. Thank you. Bye. Bye.